Welcome back to Bible Time, 1 Thessalonians 5, 7. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Let's look at the context of this. He says, Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on a breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, back in the Children of the Light, we noted that not everyone is a child of the light. This is a contrast that has been started back in um, verse 3, I believe it is, or ver- uh, and verse 4. Let's look at that. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would help us to understand your word. I pray that you'd give us enlightenment and understanding and fill us with the knowledge of you. Help us today to not only hear, but to be doers of the word. In Jesus' name and for Christ's sake, amen. So here's the the difference, this contrast that has been set up between the children of the light and those who are of the night. He says, ye are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. And we looked at this contrast and its effect in eschatology or the study of end times prophecy that the children of darkness, the children of the devil, Those that are of the night will miss the bridegroom when he comes. Those who are of the day have oil in their vessels will go with the Lord. And that's um, seen in the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise, had oil in their vessels. Five were foolish and took not oil with them in their vessels. They were all virgins. They all had lamps, which is thy word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But the lamp of the five foolish went out for lack of oil. Oil being a type of the Holy Spirit of God. And the lamps of the wise did not go out simply for the fact that they had oil in their lamps. And so the five wise went with the bridegroom and the five foolish stayed in outer darkness with those of the darkness. He says there in verse 5, Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. In Genesis 1-5, God called the darkness night, and the day he called the light he called day. So here these are used to be night and day, light and dark. And this is being used here to talk about those who are of the world and those who are of God, those who are children of the devil and those who are children of the the Father. He says, therefore, let us not sleep in verse six, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So again, here's the comparison. Now, Proverbs says, he that compares himself amongst himself is not wise, but God can compare amongst themselves. God is the one that can draw comparisons and God draws many comparisons in his word. And this is one of those cases, comparisons between they that are of the day and they that are in the, of the night. So let's look at they that sleep, that sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7. Between these two things, the night is the common denominator.
You have those that sleep and those that are drunken. And these two make up the two basic forms of all false religion right here. You have your two basic forms of all false religion. First of all, you have sleep. Now, sleep here, literally, we've talked about sleep. The Bible says in Proverbs, drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. And there is a real reality to a love of sleep bringing you to poverty in this life. We looked at that before. And And we looked at how um, even though sleep is necessary and Christ slept, there were many times that Christ did not sleep. There's a literal sleep that we can talk about, but the spiritual sleep is the greater of the two, and it is what is being most emphasized here. They that sleep, sleep in the night. Now, this sleep is a spiritual apathy. This is a lack of concern, a disinterest in spiritual things. This is where people will get off into doubtless disputations, and um, they'll get into these heady theological arguments. These often, they that sleep, and it says they that sleep, sleep in the night. It's talking about these who have their senses dulled, these who have who have become blind and cannot see afar off, as the Bible says in Peter, and have forgotten that they were purged from their old sins. Father, in Jesus' name, help us right now. These that have forgotten that they were purged from their old sins, these that have gone to God and they made a profession of faith, maybe it was just a shallow profession of faith, maybe it was a very sincere profession of faith, maybe they wept with tears on the altar, maybe they did everything that their church asked them to do, but having done the initial things that were pointed out to them as necessary for salvation by whatever denomination and group they happened to fall in with at that time, they then go to spirit spiritual sleep. They are content to think that they have made it already to heaven by making some kind of profession or by going through some kind of dead ritualism. And this makes up the vast uh, majority of conscientious conservative Christianity, of fundamental Christianity. Most fundamentalists have gone to sleep. Most fundamentalists have their doctrine down. They can discuss dispensations. They can argue with the cults and the cult leaders. They can put to shame a Jehovah's Witness on the doorstep because they know all the verses in the Bible, but the Jehovah's Witness puts them to shame because the Jehovah's Witness is out trying to win people to his false religion, and the fundamentalist is sitting at home willing to work a job, get a paycheck, put it in the bank, have a savings account, give 10% to the church, an extra 5% or something to faith promise missions, and then move on with life and act like he He's done his duty to God and man and live his life. Try and stay out of sin. Try and stay out of trouble. Try and raise his kids in some kind of relative holiness that's comparative to the other churches and the other people around him. And all the while driving by, walking by, working by people who are lost, undone, and on their way to hell and not a care in the world. Spiritual apathy, spiritual lack of concern, spiritual laziness, where you see other people and you shrug your shoulders and say, it's their choice. It's their choice. We've got a great church. They could come if they wanted to. It's their choice. I've tried to give them the gospel before. I shouldn't have to do it again. It's their choice. They're living the life that they want to live. I really shouldn't bother them too much anyway. I don't want to be an annoyance to them and turn them off. Here's another one that's real common. I don't want to push them away. 
away from the gospel. Have you ever heard that one before? You got to be careful not to push people away from the gospel. Where in the world did you get that? Because it didn't come out of the Bible. Where did you get that? Now, I know there's a reality of um, caustic, antagonistic, so-called evangelism that is not evangelism at all, where you just go out and start grabbing people by the ear and beating them over the head with the Bible with all the things that you call sin without ever even dealing with the root sins that God dealt with his word and the sin nature and the need for his savior. And you can go out and yell at people and tell them that their wives need to go home and wash dishes and that women ought not wear britches and that those women ought to let their hair grow long. And you can yell at the men for having long hair and you can yell against liquor and you can yell against cigarettes and you can yell against tattoos and you can yell against vice and you can yell against the welfare system and you can yell against liberal policies and you can yell against tree huggers and you can yell against all this kind of stuff and never do anything for God. That's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about a lack of care for people's souls. And it seems like we fall as as conservative Bible-believing people into one of two groups. We either become caustic and antagonistic and get off of the main topic and leave the gospel in the dust and start fighting for social justice for our so-called right, or we just go on with our life. And we give a little money to the next fanatic that comes by that's willing to go out and preach the gospel so that we can assume wage our guilty conscience and not feel any kind of burden for the people that are around us. A burden is heavy. A burden is inconvenient. A burden costs you sleep. A burden costs you time. A burden costs you money. I, I knew a man, and I hope he's still continuing with the Lord. I haven't seen him for some time, but I knew a man that professed to have lost several jobs simply because he would share the gospel on the job site. And I'd have no reason reason to doubt that that was what was happening. Whenever you will take time to share the gospel on the job site, people look down at you. Christians say you're stealing from your employer to take that time to tell them about the gospel. But the reality is that 99.9% of the same people will stop and stand and chit chat about the weather on the job. And the boss himself will do it every now and then because the whole world knows that if you work 100% of your speed all the time and are never friendly to anybody, you will lose all of your influence with everybody. So even the world will walk along and stop midstream to talk for two or three minutes at the workplace. It's normal. And people don't say anything about it in general. And in fact, in a lot of places where it's hard to get laborers, you'll have some gossip that'll usually walk around the job site and not work the whole day long. He'll walk from one job station to the next job station. He'll pick up something here and set down something over there. And he'll make his little circuit and never produce any usable goods for the company. Is that right? No, it's not right. But And he's a lazy bun. But he will do it and get away with it. He will do it and keep on working there. He will do it and people won't hardly say no to him. Now, usually these guys are experts at knowing exactly where the people are that would throw a fit and at knowing how to look like they're working when they're not working. But Christians will take that and use that as an excuse to never open their mouth for Christ on the job site. And they will let legitimate opportunities slide by them day after day after day after day in the name of not stealing from their boss. This is spiritual sleep. This is light gone out. God called us to be a light. Go to Matthew chapter 5. 
Here he says, ye are the salt of the earth, and if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. There are a few different ways to be light and salt in your workplace. Number one, if you're in a strict workplace environment, you be on watch, ready to go, your heart ready, prayed up, and ready to speak when it's break time. When break time comes, be ready. When lunch time comes, be ready. Go to work a few minutes early. Show up before the bell rings and stand there with all the guys that do their customary, what the world calls BSing, which is short for cussing. I wouldn't use that, but that's what they literally call it. I had one job offer once. I was offered, it would have been a great job. High paying job, stable job, um, solid job, and it was work that I was excelling in and they knew I was excelling in it. And and I had a reputation with the people and they offered me the job. When they offered me the job, they said, listen, um, I just want you to know we're a tight team here. I knew that already. We're a pretty tight team here and we all show up. I can't remember what time. Do you remember what time they wanted me to show up? I think work started at 6 a.m. and they said, we're all here by 5 a.m. to drink coffee and BS and they didn't use the abbreviation for it. And they basically told me, if you want this job, you've got to be here an hour early to be friendly and and just talk about a bunch of junk with us. And I already knew what they talked about. I already knew what went through with what they what they thought was a good time of the so-called stuff that they're doing is chit chatting using their uh, and it was all full of vulgar language and profanity and wickedness and and immorality and all these things and I knew one of two things was going to happen I was going to go and preach at them for an hour and get fired or I was going to say no to the job so I just saved us all some pain I had already been sharing the gospel with them by God's grace and had had opportunities with every one of them Um, to share the gospel. So I saved us all the pain of a failed work attempt at working together because I knew I wasn't going to be a good fit. I knew they were not going to be happy if they had to put up with me every day. And I knew I wasn't going to be either. It wasn't going to work in that kind of environment. But listen to me, you can show up at work early. You can leave work late. You say, oh, I can't work late. I I can't leave work late. I've got to go home and feed the cows. But when overtime comes up, you can work late six days a week and miss Wednesday night church for overtime. But you can't stay 10 minutes late to stand around with the guys that are smoking and breathe a whole pack of Cheyenne with them and tell them about Jesus. Your lungs are too pure to smoke their smoke with them. Now listen, I don't think you ought to be smoking as a Christian, but smoking isn't something that is forbidden by God. It's not nearly as big a deal as not sharing the gospel. Having your light extinguished. In fact, the real reason that Christians ought not smoke is is because the smoke puts a cloud around your testimony of salvation. And the world says, what are you doing smoking? What are you doing smoking? You profess Christ. And they have valid reasons to ask that. He says in Matthew 5 and verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. We're going to look at that salt a little more when we get down into the next part of this verse. Here in the first part of the verse, they that sleep, sleep in the night. Look at this in verse 14. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on an hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Christians are called to be light. Light shines best at night. When the day is in full swing and the sun is shining at its brightness, you might not even notice a light bulb is on. You might even leave the lights on in your shop and those things might run all day long and finally about dusk you go to turn the lights on because you noticed it getting dark outside and all of a sudden you notice that you can still see inside and remember that your lights have been on all day. Your light doesn't really shine except in the night. They that sleep, sleep in the night. Ye are all children of the light, the Bible says. If you're a child of the light, you should be putting off light and if you're putting off light, then your light will be put off in the night and your light will shine in the night better than it shines in any other place. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. By the way, if you will work like a Joseph instead of like a Reuben and a Simeon, if you will work hard at your workplace and if you will do what's expected of you and then some, if you will run when you're asked to go get something or at least walk as fast as you can walk, if you'll take some quick steps if you look out for the interests of your boss and of your company, if you, if you will seek their welfare, if you will get out of the whining bandwagon and stop begging for raises and stop begging for more and stop begging for better um, benefits and longer breaks, and if you'll just shut your mouth about all those other things, if you'll stop talking with all the men about politics and stop talking about economics and stop talking about the baseball game and the football game other than just a friendly smile and just be nice to people and do good to them and help them out and watch their backs for them and encourage them and pick up something they drop for them and be a servant in that workplace. God will open doors for you and you will be able to speak for Christ. And then in cases of true persecution, you might get fired, but then God will open the doors for you that you need in another area. You can trust God and you can be a light even in your work place. God has called us to be children of the light. If you are saved, you are a child of the light. By the way, a lot of persecution that goes on in the workplace for so-called Christians are the so-called Christians that are walking around, um, listening to the dirty jokes, laughing with everybody else taking too long on their breaks. It's a 15-minute break, and they're back at their workplace at 20. The boss can expect them to leave about five minutes before their break and get back five minutes after the break. The boss can expect them to show up late, and he can expect them to leave early. Oh, they don't leave the job place early, but they're sitting in their car whenever the horn blows, and they've had their their workstation shut down for 15 minutes so they could so-called clean, and now they're sitting in their car ready to leave as soon as the horn goes and they're peeling out through there and the boss knows that they do not have anything but their own interests in mind and then they try and share the gospel with somebody shut down an assembly line for 10-15 minutes and the boss catches them at that moment and says that's it you're out of here we don't need your kind and they say oh look at me I've been persecuted all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution I got fired because I was being a witness at my work 
workplace. That's by and large the kind of so-called persecution that goes on and you have no right to claim persecution if that's why you're suffering. That's suffering for your own stinking laziness sake. Listen, you have got to earn the right to be heard in most cases. You don't, listen, why would somebody listen to you? Why would you listen to somebody else? You're just going to walk up to, somebody walks up to you at work and says, hey man, I want to tell you everything you've ever believed is wrong. You're on your way to a dark place of fire. Your parents are wrong. Your church is wrong. The books that you read are wrong. Your TV preachers are wrong. Your pastor's wrong. Your deacons are wrong. Your nieces and nephews and uncles and aunts, they're all wrong. In fact, everybody in this workplace is wrong. I'm the only person right around here, and I'm telling you, you're in danger, and you need to listen to me. You wouldn't give them two minutes. You would tell them to hit the road. Get on down the road. Why do we as Christians feel entitled in this world? Why do we think that we have a right to make the government make people listen to us? We don't. You've got no right to be heard. You've got a right to shut your mouth, but you don't have a right to be heard. And if you want a right to be heard, a lot of times you've got to earn it. You've got to be gentle. You've got to be loving. You've got to be kind. You've got to be servant-hearted. You have to think more of others than you do yourself. And if you don't, you will lose the opportunity and the door will shut. Spiritual apathy, lack of concern, disinterest in spiritual things makes people asleep in this world. And when they're sleeping in this world, world, like the foolish virgins, their light is bound to go out. It's interesting in that passage, both of them slept, the wise and the foolish. There's a time for sleep, as we noted previously. But here, these that are spiritually sleeping, disinterested in spiritual things, a lack of concern for the people around them, and then every now and then, out of a sheer feeling of guilt trip, they'll awkwardly stuff a tract in somebody's hand without, and just walk away going, shoo, I'm so glad I did my duty. I'm so glad that I can notch my spiritual pistol and say that I gave out a gospel tract and now I can prove that I'm a good Christian. And if the pastor asks me this week, how many of you passed out a tract this week? I can raise my hand and everybody can see how holy and righteous I am. And the young man that you just stuck the tract in the hand of knows you don't give a rip. He knows you don't care one bit for his soul. He can see it. He can smell it. He can feel it. Spiritual sleep, useless in the kingdom of God. This first group of these that sleep in the night are the Pharisees. They are content to stand over the damned, aloof from their needs, and say, at least... I'm not like them. They'll go to church and they'll put in their earbuds and listen to their holy music. I'm not against having godly music. I'm for it. I'm not against earbuds. Sometimes you need to listen to some godly music at the workplace, especially when they're drowning you in all the filth of this world and you can't hear your own self think because of the loudness of the wicked music. Sometimes you need that stuff. But the Pharisee will put on his headphones. He'll put in his earbuds. He'll turn on his godly music. He'll listen to his sermons and he'll stand there in his assembly line. He'll sit at his desk. He'll type at his computer and he will let count numbers of lost people slip by him on their way to hell while he works on his anger problem, while he works on better management of his money. He's going to listen to some guy talk about how to be a good steward for Christ. And while he's being a good steward with his dollar bills, all the people around him that he knows are on their way to hell and he won't say a word to them because he is asleep. 
He's asleep, spiritually asleep. Oh, he's got his systematic theology down. The Pharisees have got it down. He's got the right Bible. He's got a King James Version authorized Bible, which is the word of God in English. It's right. It's right whether you say it's wrong or right. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. This is the word of God in English. And anybody that wants to know the truth about the word of God and the Bible versions can find it. It's readily available. If you have a heart to seek God and you want what's best, you'll find it because it's right there readily available. Just because a Pharisee uses it doesn't mean it's the wrong Bible. Did you know the Pharisees were the keepers of the Bibles? The Pharisees were the ones that oversaw the preservation of God's word on earth that God, Jesus Christ, told his disciples, do as they say, but not as they do, because they say the right thing. But then he told them they bind burdens grievous to be borne on men and they won't touch the burdens with one of their fingers. The Pharisee will go to sleep and he'll preach a great message at his church about getting out and witnessing. He'll preach a message about prayer time. He'll set everybody to praying and then he'll go eat the fat and drink the wine and go to bed and sleep all night long while his church and his people labor in prayer. The Pharisee is the spiritual asleep, the spiritual apathetic. They become legalistic. They have no spirit in them, no oil in their vessels, no power of God. They have a form of godliness and before long begin to deny the power thereof. Life becomes a series of rituals. They follow their little set tasks that God gives them and they're not willing to deviate from their task even to obey the voice of God himself. They're going to stick to it. Oh, it's prayer time. My neighbor's truck is in the ditch. He's out there spinning his tires. It's raining outside, but I'm in the middle of my prayer time. I don't have time to help him. Oh, there's my neighbor's cows got out. I've got to get to church. I'll be late for church. I'm not going to stop and help him. I'll wave at him in my suit and tie while I drive by to the church house and leave him standing there in the road in the mud trying to drag all of his cattle back in through a hole in the fence. This is the Pharisee. Spiritual apathy. Total regulation. Discipline of life and he's getting his beauty rest going through life. He's got his finances managed. He's got his household managed. He's got everything in order. He's got everything down to a T. He knows when to wake up, when to go to sleep. He's got everything set just right. He's inflexible, immovable, and unavailable for the work of God because he is set. He has set himself to sleep his way into the kingdom of heaven, and he's useless to the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual sleep is Christless Christianity. The lights have gone out in the temple. The building is there, but the glory is departed. It's the same altar. It's the same laver. It's the same brass pillars on both sides of the doors. It's the same table of showbread. It's the same lampstand. It's the same altar of incense. It's the same veil, and there might even be the Ark of the Covenant, the same old Ark of the Covenant, the very one Moses carried around in the wilderness behind the veil. And there might even be Aaron's rod that budded and some old manna in that old Ark. But the Shekinah glory of God has departed. And there's a sleep and an apathy that has settled over spiritual Jerusalem of our day. And those that believe the word of God have gone to sleep. And the light has gone out. The light is 
extinguished. Jesus said, ye are the light of the world. Now, in its context, Jesus was speaking to the Jew. But as Paul said in Romans 9, 10, and 11, be not high-minded, but fear. If God spared not the natural branches, take care, lest he spare not thee. The Jews went to sleep. The Jews got apathetic. The Jews didn't care about the Gentile dogs. The Jews did not fulfill their purpose of being a light to lighten the Gentiles. And Jesus Christ came and began to lighten the world. And they said, shut the lights off. We are enjoying our sleep. Do not wake us up. Do not bother us. And they had him crucified. Crucify him. Crucify him. God cut off the natural branches and he grafted in the Gentile branches, but the time is coming, beloved, whenever Christ will cut off the disobedient Gentile branches who have gone to sleep just like the Jews, and he will graft back in the Jewish church and restore the literal physical Jew to spiritual privilege. That is verbatim what Paul preaches in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, verbatim would actually imply that it's word for word, and it is not that, but it is exactly what Paul is preaching in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Be not high-minded, but fear. He tells them blindness in part is happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now we get to the second part of this text, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Now there's two drunkens here. There's the two sleeps, and there's true two forms of drunkenness. Um, there's the physical, and the, which is literal, and the spiritual. The literal drunken is drunken in the night. Now everybody that drinks knows that somebody that drinks in the morning is, has a bad case of it. And that's what this world would often call an alcoholic. Somebody that has to start his day with liquor. Somebody that has to go and hit the bottle first thing in the morning. You know he's got a bad problem. But this world that allows drunkenness, this wicked world that allows this sin that God condemns of drunkenness, usually confines most of their drunkenness to the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. The night, again, is the common denominator. And here between sleep and drunkenness, we see the two forms of false churchianity and false religion. The first one was legalism. The first one was apathy, lack of concern, disinterest, self-preservation, um, self-pleasing, but not actually in a sinful way. I'm just sleeping. I'm just taking care of my needs. Me-centric, selfish, instead of Christ-centric, and working to serve the lost in this dying world and to serve Christ by doing so. Drunken has to do with those that are drunk in this life and drunk in this world. There's the physical drunkenness um, drunkenness, and there's the spiritual drunkenness. Go to Proverbs 23 and let's look at some of this physical drunkenness. Now, a lot of people that love their liquor love to discount what the Bible says in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is where God deals with most physical drunkenness and the New Testament is where he deals more with the spiritual drunkenness, but both applications are there in both places. Let's look at it. Um, Proverbs 23 and verse 29. Here he says, Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. Hmm. 
Well, that excludes a whole lot right there. Don't even look at it. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. I knew a wino once, a professing Christian wino. Boy, he could explain this better than anybody I've ever heard. Man, he went into detail about what the wine does in the cup and how you swizzle it around before you sip it and how it affects your body and all this stuff. And he went into all this long monologue about how this accurately represents the steps leading up to drunkenness. And then basically, I guess, used that as his, as his excuse that he knew how to handle it because he'd figured out exactly where in that little chain of events he could go to without tipping over and falling off the wagon. What a mess of folly. It says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Now God being my help for today, we're going to look at this in the light of the spiritual drunkenness that has come upon Christianity. Not only is there a physical drunkenness, and we can see from the Word of God, I can show you from Scripture very clearly how sinful it is for a Christian to indulge in recreational use of alcoholic beverages, and sinful it is. The Bible says right there in Proverbs 24, 9, the thought of foolishness is sin, and the smallest amount of alcohol taken in begins already to affect the thoughts. You might not be drunk by your definition, but who gave you the right to define who's drunk and who's not? You've got your little ways of defining who's drunk and who's not, but God's got his ways. And when you cross God's line, you cross the line, whether it's your line or not. And the Bible says in Proverbs 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Go to Numbers, or I'm sorry, Leviticus. Go to the book of Leviticus. I want to just show you something here. God says that the Old Testament was written for our ensamples. Here in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. When you get down here to verse 9, the Lord deals with Aaron over this. In direct context, the Lord is dealing with Aaron because of the great sin that had been committed of offering strange fire. Verse 8, And the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine, nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, and that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. Here God was showing that Nadab and Abihu's failure was due to their drinking. Nadab and Abihu had been hit in the bottle, and Nadab and Abihu then offered strange fire. They made mistakes that they would not have otherwise made. Go to Proverbs chapter 
31. Here you have the words of a mother to her king. This whole chapter and all this about the virtuous woman is an exhortation of a woman to a king. And she says here, though it says the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. What, my son? And what? The son of my womb? And what? The son of my vows? Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Here, drink is is noted to be for those that are ready to die, those that are poor, basically the homeless, the man on the side of the street. In the book of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6, the Bible says that God has made us unto him kings and priests. Now, if you're not a king and a priest, go ahead, bottoms up, enjoy. But if you're a born-again believer washed in the blood of the Lamb, you've been made to God a king and you've been made a God a priest. Both of those positions require extreme sobriety. You cannot afford to mess with liquor. The sin is in the foolishness of it. The liquor itself was designed by God medicinally. And it has medicinal properties that it was designed for. But to use it recreationally is a folly that we find first mentioned in the word of God attributed to a man named Noah, a just man and perfect in his generations, a man that feared God, a man that walked with God. And yet after the flood, for whatever reason, maybe through atmospheric changes, who knows, he evidently drank more than he should have drank. Maybe fermentation was new to him. Maybe he had a vice. Maybe he had a weak spot for that wine and he just wanted to taste some of it again, that fermented stuff. And maybe he got into it, but the sin that came down on his family, the moment he indulged, passed on for generation after generation after generation after generation. I have never met a Christian that allows drinking of liquor recreationally that was walking with God ever in my life. And I've never met a Christian who allows um, recreational indulgence of alcoholic beverages whose children walked with God and who with and continued in that habit or that walked with God as much as they were, even though they weren't. They might have been going along doing all right and they seem to be able to hold their liquor and come to church and keep the smell of the liquor off their breath at the church house, but eventually it caught them and eventually it took them down false ways. Here, drunkenness in the Bible is commanded against over and over again. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now you can make all your excuses. I don't think that I could convince you if you like your liquor. There, I already know I can't convince you that God's against it. There's enough verses in the Bible for you to twist to your own destruction. You can hang yourself with them if you want to. But God is against your recreational use of alcohol. He's against the foolishness. He's against the wickedness. He's against the demonic oppression that you are bringing in your life. He's against the demonic access you're giving to your the devil to your family. 
family. He's against the wicked fruit that's going to come out of it, and it's going to cost you dearly. And because of that, it is a sin for a Christian to drink liquor, to drink alcoholic beverages recreationally. It is a sin because of all of the sin that it brings and the fact that the thought of foolishness is sin and to not walk with God is sin. If you walk after the flesh, ye shall die. That which is not of faith is sin. I have liquor people tell me, I have faith to drink liquor. You, sir, are a liar. If you have faith, it's if you have biblical faith, it's based on God's word. And your twisting of scriptures and neglect of other clear scriptures and your total disregard for the law of God and the word of God and the direction of God and the lost souls around you and everything else that matters to God and true holiness and true righteousness is evident proof that you're not doing anything in faith. That which is not of faith is sin. And you can say, oh, I have faith to drink this liquor, but your faith is presumption. Your faith is presumption. You've taken the liberty of Christ and made it lasciviousness so that you can be drunken in the night with those of the night because you are of the night and a child of the night. Now, this drunkenness, go back to Proverbs um, 23. Spiritually, let's look more at the spiritual application. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. The Bible says, he that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Here it's using it in the reference to the pleasure involved in it. And pleasure-seeking Christians are the drunken Christians of our days. You might be an abstinence marching lady um, from all the way back in the days whenever Billy Sunday was smashing beer bottles and cups on, in bars with a baseball bat. But if you are a pleasure-loving lady, then this applies to you and you are a drunken Christian. Drunken Christians love amusements. They love entertainments. They love novels, all kinds of worldly books, sports, games, video games, TV, the pleasures of this life. They say things like, everybody's got to have their leisure time. And they talk about all the things that they love to do. And they'll give God a little bit. Maybe they'll give God their tithe. Maybe they'll give a little bit to missions. Maybe they'll go to church every Sunday. Maybe they even show up for Sunday night or on extreme cases, they might come on Wednesday night, but the vast majority of their thoughts and of the direction of their life is given to pleasure seeking. It might even be something as innocuous as horseback riding. They might just love horses and horseback riding, and really, deep down, they live for horses and horseback riding. They're drunks. They're drunk on the things of this world. They're drunk on the pleasures that only last for a season. They're drunk riding around a bunch of stinking, hairy animals whenever they've got a white horse waiting for them to ride back from heaven. They're drunk busy with the affairs of this life and the cares of this life. They're drunk with making money. They're drunk with going on vacation. They're drunk with listening to their radio station. They're drunk with family activities. Listen to me. You can be drunk with the pleasure of family time. They're drunk with board games. What's wrong with board games anyway? Listen to me today. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. I want you to ask, I want you to ask yourself a serious question today. Board games are not sin in and of themselves. And it's not necessarily wrong to sit down every now and then and enjoy a little leisure time. 
with your family and things like that, okay? This is, I'm not saying that you have to be an ascetic to follow God. There is, God does allow you to have some time with your family and it'll be needed. And there's some good, enjoyable times and pleasures that God does give you in this life. But there's a difference between enjoying some pleasures and living for pleasure. The Bible said of one woman or, or of women, the widows, it says of these younger widows that she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And some of you maybe here, maybe out there listening online, you're dead while you're living. If you're not, if you don't have a party planned, if you don't have some event planned, you cannot be happy. You just sit there in the doldrums, staring at the wall, wishing that the next big thing that can give you a rush and excitement will come around. It might not even be a bad thing. It might be a softball game with your church. It might be playing volleyball at the church. They may be good things, but you're living for pleasure. Your life is about pleasure. Your life is about you. And you've become drunken on the pleasures of this life. And as a drunk, what are you going to end up with? Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. I've seen all of these symptoms in a family with no alcohol present. I've seen all of these symptoms and I've been partaker of them as a younger man. I can remember getting together and we'd have these all night board game nights and we would drink good old soda pop, high fructose corn syrup, flavored and full of bubbles, useless stuff. But nevertheless, we would drink it and caffeinated and we would eat our snacks and we would play our games. And by the end of the night, guess what we would have? Woe, sorrow, contentions, babbling, wounds without cause, redness of eyes. We'd have all of it because we were chasing the pleasures of this world. And do you know what happens whenever a Christian doesn't even touch the liquor bottle, but he can't get enough pleasure in this life? A pleasure-seeking Christian is going to follow this thing right down to the end. It says in verse 33, Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Because listen to me, soda pop is only going to get you so far. Pizza is only going to get you so far. Board games are only going to get you so far. Hanging out with your family and having arguments at 3 a.m. in the morning over what obscure rule is right in in your board game is only going to get you so far. Eventually, the pleasure is going to wear off. And you being addicted to pleasure and a lover of pleasure, being dead while you live, dead to spiritual things, no spiritual life in you, just dead, warmed over death. Living in your license, watching your football, watching your baseball. Who would, oh, nothing against you. Who would watch NASCAR? You watch a car go in circles 350 times. The same car, the same circles. Why would anybody watch golf? You take a stick and you hit this little white pimply ball and it flies through the air. And there goes the camera watching this ball. And then it lands on the green. Boink, 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 boink. And it rolls and it rolls and it rolls and it finally stops and everybody claps. What has gotten into us? Since when is this amazing? Why is this such a big deal? Because we're lovers of pleasure. The Bible says in the end times, men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And we have become lovers of pleasure. If you want to go hit a white pimply ball into a hole, knock yourself out. But love God. Follow God. Don't make it your life. Don't let it consume you. 
paintball, pickleball, all kinds of ball. They've got everything out there. Bocce ball. You name it. There's always a new game being invented. There's always a new event to do. There's always a new sport. There's always something. Have you ever wondered if the TV would ever run out of things to show? It doesn't. They just keep adding channel after channel after channel. And if you pay this much a month, you can get another 150 channels full of stupid stuff that you don't want to watch, which is evidenced by the fact that you sit there clicking the channel button all night long. Click, 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 click. It's a bunch of rot. But what's happened is we've gotten drunk on the pleasures of this life. Drunk on movies. Drunk on TV. Drunk on music. Drunk on sangins. Did you know you can get drunk on sangins and do nothing for God? And you say, oh, well, God loves to hear our praise. I wish I was a leaf blowing in the wind. la di la and we can sing all these songs. But you know that God gave you a job to do? God said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. God wants you to love him. God wants you to serve him. God wants you to enjoy him. God wants you to worship him. But if you begin to love pleasure, you will become a drunk Christian spiritually. Drunk and absolutely insensible. It's amazing to me. Lord, help me today. It's amazing to me how we can come and sit under a preacher with anointing and he gets up there and he preaches his heart out, preaches his guts out, and people sit there like fish at a fish packing plant, eyes wide open, mouths hanging open, gasping for air, and you can look at them and you can almost tell what their favorite baseball team is by the expression on their face because they're not there, not there. They've checked out. They're drunk drunk on the things of this world. They're sitting there and their mind is doing reruns of the movie they watched last night. Oh, they've seen the movie a hundred times, but now they're watching it again in their brain and the preacher's preaching and they're drunk. They have no spiritual sensitivity left at all. And they're just sitting there dead as a doornail, drunk on the things of this world. They're sitting there thinking about riding their horse across the prairie. Galump, 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 galump. Their hair's blowing in the wind. That perfect boy they've been dreaming about is suddenly riding up on his beautiful stallion with his big cowboy hat. And they don't hear a word the preacher says. Not a word. They're gone. They're checked out. They're drunk. Drunk on the things of this world. They've got a ping pong paddle in their hand. And that's their mind, the whole service. All the whole time the pastor's preaching, the ball's going dinka dunka dinka dunka dinka dunka dinka dunka. And they're replaying the 17 hours of ping pong that they did last week. And trying to think how they can strategize to defeat their foe and prove that they're the greatest ping ponger. It's laughable, unless it's your thing. And then it's serious. It could be horseshoes, throwing horseshoes at a stake in the ground. It could be swinging on a swing set. It could be swimming in the creek. It could be just running through the fields, singing some song with your arms floating in the breeze, counting the butterflies that really gives you pleasure. Whatever it is, your pleasures become your enemy when they get between you and Christ. 
The Bible says in the last days that men will be lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. They that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. Let's go back to our text there in 1 Thessalonians. And Lord willing, we'll look more at what our response should be in the next verse as we study it. This verse deals entirely in the negative And so we're confining ourselves mostly to what it deals with. But here in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says in these two verses that sandwich it, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. You are in a battle. I have heard testimony after testimony. I have, I, listen, I know a man who says of his dad, and, I, and I'm not talking about myself. I know that in my family, we had struggles with video games. And movies, that was kind of our drunkenness, and we get off on that drunkenness. And it brought all manner, it allowed such an influx of evil and wickedness into my home growing up that I hate that trash. I don't want near that trash. And I don't want it near me. But listen to me. I know a man who says that whenever he was a young man, he had, he, they got these little video games. He tells his story. I'll tell his instead of mine. It's less personal that way, right? So he said he got these little video games. They started playing video games. And they, hey, dad, 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 look at this video game. Come play this video. Look at this. This is so cool. Come play this. And his dad would always say, no, boys, no. Uh, you guys go ahead. I, I just don't have the self-control. That kind of stuff just, it just, I can't do it and not do it. So I'm not going to do it. And praise God for a dad that wouldn't do it, but they just kept badgering. They kept pushing. They kept prodding. And finally, one day, oh, all right, fine. I'll sit down over there. And they got up from the chair. Yeah, dad, sit down. Show us how to do it. And dad sat down at that game, and this man told me his dad did not get up for two years. Maybe two years is wrong. Maybe it was longer. I can't remember. It was a long time. His dad went to work. His dad went to church. His dad did functions at the, at the church house. And his dad played video games. And that's it. And he lost years of his life. No, not only did he not get to play the video games because they only had one computer. Oh, we fixed that in our days. And we just buy tablets and smartphones and computers for everybody in the house. But in those days, and my experience was more similar to that, the, in that there was only one computer in the house. So you had to take turns. And here his dad sat at that computer and sat at that computer until he said that he hates video games. He hates them. He despises them. He loathes them because he saw them steal his dad from him. Is that what it's going to take for you? Are you going to wake up someday and your life has gone by and your children are grown And what you could have done for God is a could have done and it's no longer a reality because you wasted your life chasing pleasures. For some of you, your pleasures are a bigger cattle herd. Some of you, your pleasures are a diesel truck. Some of you, your pleasures are that hobby farm that you're trying to make a go of. Whatever your pleasure is, if it gets between you and Christ, it becomes enemy number one. Be sober. Be vigilant. We'll get into more of that sobriety that God calls us to in verse 8. And right now, I just want you to take time and do business with God. Do not fall into the trap of being a lover 
of pleasure. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, if any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It is going to cost you to follow Christ. They that sleep, sleep in the night and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Father, in Jesus name, Lord, forgive us our our misplaced love. Forgive us our out-of-balance love, Lord God, and help us to love you. And when you let us have some pleasure, Lord, help us to enjoy it and enjoy it heartily and then lay it down and not to ever let it get any kind of grip on us and to follow you with all our hearts, to run full speed after you, Lord, and not to slow down and to be willing to give up anything, Lord, that keeps us from the fullness of your presence and your power and the fulfillment of your plan for our lives. In Jesus' name, for Christ's sake, amen.